This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Everyone makes mistakes, even scribes writing original Torah scrolls. Yes, but according to Jewish law, making an error with Yehovah's name in a scroll presents a very big problem. Nehemiah Gordon presents why such strange things were done to ancient scrolls in an effort to keep the name of Yehovah sacred. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Well, Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. You've heard it, I've heard it, we've always heard that if a scribe made an error when writing the name of Yehovah on a manuscript, that manuscript had to be completely destroyed. Well, is that true? Did it ever happen? And if not, what did happen if an error was made? Some very intriguing stories coming up with Nehemiah Gordon. But first, we have an anniversary this weekend on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. It is the second Shabbat of the fifth month. And this weekend, that marks the anniversary of when Yeshua and his disciples harvested grain to eat on the Sabbath. Remember, they went through the fields and they, they rubbed the grain in their hands and they ate it. Well, that was considered Harvesting, which was not breaking the Sabbath, by the way, according to the Bible. That was breaking the Sabbath according to the Pharisees, and that's exactly why Yeshua did it, to put it in their face. We can see more about that in event number 68 in the Chronological Gospels Bible. And speaking of that, we have something very special, so please welcome my co-host to talk about that, our partner services and product fulfillment leader, David Robinson. Good to be here. Okay, so this is something we typically only do on something called Mission Monday. That's right. Which we do every November uh, following uh, Thanksgiving. A lot of people are really excited about oh, this. Oh, gosh. And this week, you've probably already seen it. Maybe you haven't acted on it, but I want you to act before Sunday. This is our summer of savings. This is week three of this. We're doing a different sale every week. And this week, we brought it out. Two for one chronological gospels. Not just the Bible, not just the chart, not just the study guide, the TV series too, everything to do with chronological gospels, but it ends Sunday. So let's go through a couple of these things. David, you have the chart there. Oh, yeah, let's roll the chart that out. Here. Let's, you can grab that. This is one of the coolest things. This is basically, if you ever wanted to explain to somebody what Michael Rood's life work was, you could basically just pull this out. Yes. This, this is figuring out what day, what week, what what happened when in Yeshua's ministry and how do the how do the, the gospels correlate? How do they line up? And this is the 70 weeks of Yeshua's ministry. And if you go 70 weeks, your friends say, it was three and a half years. Right. You pull this out, you go through it, you really pay attention to what Yeshua said, when he said it, look in the Bible. You know what, in my mind, after seeing this for, you know, working with the ministry for several years now, there is no way this is incorrect. Right. No way. It had to be 70 weeks because otherwise it doesn't line up. Right. And half of the things Yeshua said in the Bible won't make sense. So exactly. that is a beautiful thing that explains in a nutshell what that is. And so what you can do is you can take that scroll and you can use the study guide mm -hmm. to basically go through questions, very intriguing questions like, um, what was so special about the healing of the nobleman's son? 
Okay, good question. Let's look it up. Let's study about this. Uh, why does Yeshua go up to Jerusalem? Um, so all these really intriguing questions that are really great for a Bible study group. Mm -hmm. If you have an V Fellowship, right, David? Yeah, a lot of people in our V Fellowships use, use the study God. Right, so you use this, in, and the beautiful thing is all these things line up, they all fit together like a puzzle. That's so right. if you have the chart, the chart, the, the colors, the, all the colors you saw on the chart correlate with the colors and events mm -hmm. in the Chronological Gospels Bible. It all matches up. So you know exactly what week something happened. In exactly. fact, when we're putting together the, uh, the calendar every year, mm -hmm. uh, the calendar that we just saw on the screen there, uh, I play a big role in that every year, trying to make sure that things line up and all that kind of thing. And there's, there's several on our team that, that make sure it's all right. But we use that chart and we use the Chronological Gospels Bible to figure out what week is what in Yeshua's ministry. So the, the calendar, which is not really part of this sale, but you can get the calendar. It's yeah. only 1995, right? So right. you get the calendar, you get a Bible, you get the chart, you get the study guide. You will know, you will become an expert like Michael Rood, dare I say, about what Yeshua did and when, when. and why it matters knowing when he did something. It yeah. really matters because when you figure out when things happened, it lines up, Yeshua's life and ministry and his second coming line up with all of the feasts that's of right. Yehovah. That's right. And now it makes sense why he is the living Torah. And that's what makes a lot of Christians go, oh my goodness, yeah, I didn't really realize that. It all together. Now it fits together. Now they go, you know what? You're right. This, this is our faith. This is when you, the lights come on to mm -hmm. realizing what your faith is really all about. It's Yeshua is the Torah. He is the feast. The living Torah. Yeah. And for you people who have very good eyes, we have the small edition here. <laughs> and, and if you have eyes like mine, you have the large edition. Now let's show a couple things about this. So open the small one, I'll open the large one, and you can just see the type difference. What we did was literally expand the type. That's all we did. We took the, the type, we expanded it, and that became the size of this. Mm -hmm. So it's about, uh, I believe, about 30% larger yes, if, if 30. memory serves correctly. Mm -hmm. But another beautiful thing about the large one, watch this. I mean, the beautiful thing about that one is you can carry it around with you, you can put it in a bag or something like that. But this one, you can set it down, make a lot of noise in the process. But <laughs> But I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> but it sits open like this. So if you're teaching at a, at a pulpit or, or a lectern or something like that, you can leave it open and it, the pages are heavy enough that it mm -hmm. just sits there. It does. Which is a beautiful thing for teaching. Mm -hmm. So you can get these. Any one of these, they're all buy one, give, give one. one. It's not a buy one, get one. It's a buy one, give one. We want you to give one away, especially if you already have one. So any of these items, buy one, give one, the, the study guide, any size of the Bible, the Chronological Gospels yes. television series, which we never even got into, but you know all about that, mm -hmm. uh, plus the, uh, the, chart. the chart as well. Anything, and that's this week only, op op uh, only until Sunday. I was gonna say open until Sunday. Well, the sale is open until Sunday, and then it's gone, right? <laughs> all right, so that is happening until Sunday, but tonight you're gonna see a little bit of Manuscript Mysteries, episode two. This one is called Removing God's Name. Check this out. So I went looking for it, and I found it. And here's a scroll that has it. Now I found it in numerous scrolls, more than I can count. Huh. Um, but here's an example where they cut God's name out, not to dis disgrace it or to desecrate it, but because it was too holy to destroy. And then you say- So that's not destroying it? No, not at all, because they kept that little piece of parchment. Oh. And we're told in medieval sources what to do with that piece of parchment. You take glue, literally glue, put it on the back of that little piece, right? It's a single word piece of parchment. And you can do two things that I know of, at least. One is you stick it onto the side of the ark, which is the cabinet in which you keep a Torah scroll. Mm -hmm. 
I haven't found any examples of that, but it's mentioned in the ancient medieval literature. The other thing you can do is you glue it to the back of another Torah scroll. And I found two examples of that so far where there's just a word glued on the back of a Torah scroll and it's the name of God. Wow. Pretty cool stuff. That is very cool. I had no idea that was done. So we are now destroying sacred cows as it were. <laughs> well, what we're doing is correcting an and error in the text by, by not defacing God's name based on this rabbinical interpretation, which I don't agree with, right? But the way they read Deuteronomy 12, three and four is it's forbidden to erase God's name even when it's a mistake. Okay, in that case, preserve that word. Don't destroy the word, but cut mm. it out and put it somewhere else. You gotta remove it from the scroll because it's an error. And even celebrating it at that point, really, to put it on the back of a scroll or yeah. so. Preserving wow. it in a holy way where God's name won't be stepped on or destroyed. Okay, so there you go. An example that Nehemiah gives of what to do if you mess up the name of Yehovah or put it in the wrong place, what do you do to correct the scroll and yet not disgrace his name? That's right. Very yes. tricky process. It is, and he goes into a lot more in this. That, yeah. yeah. It's really good. So now, David, we have uh, the love gift in front of us. You get all kinds of great gifts if you yep. want to give uh, $100 to the ministry or $300 to the ministry. But tonight, I want to tell you about this teaching because if you haven't got it yet, please get it. And I'm not saying this just because this is a fundraiser for the ministry. This is Probably something really- one of the really most important love gift teachings we oh, have. Yeah, it is, yeah. And it really is. It, I can't even hang on to it, so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The World to Come. We call it The World to Come because this is a message that I had an interview with a Holocaust survivor. And she is saying that what you saw in the Holocaust, the same type of things are happening with the government, with the medical community, and how it's they collaborated. Year. You know exactly what I'm talking mm -hmm. about in the last- 18 months or so, mm -hmm. you need to know what's going on here and what's coming up next. That's why we call it the world to come because I don't know if anybody's gonna be able to stop this. You need to be warned, warned what's coming up next. We put it on DVD or Blu-ray. We didn't dare put it on YouTube. We didn't dare put it on Facebook. We would be torn down oh, so it, it fast would be gone quickly. if, we saw, if quickly. someone saw this. So we're giving it to you in secret. Okay, this is a this is a, uh, a dire warning for you. It, it's something you can pass on to your friends, and it's also a donation to the ministry to help us keep giving you important messages like this. Pass it to friends. Do whatever you can do. That's why we're putting it on DVD. Something it's not subject to fact checkers. Okay, so that's why we're doing it. All right, thank you for joining us today, David. You betcha. All right, Nehemiah Gordon explains why strange things were done to ancient scrolls in an effort to keep the name of Yehovah sacred. Very interesting, very creative stuff. Manuscript Mysteries, episode two is coming up. Stay with us. It's very, very unnerving for me to have to dig up those memories. Every month, Michael Rood gives you a special teaching when you donate to our Love Gift program. This month, we are offering a teaching unlike any other. It is a history lesson, and it's a warning for your future. This month's teaching is an urgent alert from a survivor of the Holocaust, Vera Sharav, about today's collaboration between medicine and government, the very same type of collaboration she saw firsthand that led to the Holocaust. Medicine, when it leaves the private office, the private doctor with you, the patient, is something else entirely. It is weaponized, and it has been weaponized. That's what the Nazis did. And to a great extent, this is what's happening now. The World to Come with Holocaust survivor Vera Sharav will never be on YouTube, and it can never be broadcast. But it is something you need to hear. That's why we're offering it as a gift, 
as a DVD or a Blu-ray, something you can play over and over again in the privacy of your own home with no one censoring the message. And the only way we can do that is with funding from your donations. So with a donation of $50, we'll send you the world to come as a gift. If you'd like to help the ministry further with a donation of $100, we'll send you the world to come and a hollow bread cover made of silk and embroidered with pomegranates. Or as a special offer for a donation of $300, we'll send you the world to come, the hollow bread cover, and this wonderful key holder with precious stones from Israel. It's a blessing for everyone who enters your home. Along with these beautiful gifts, this teaching, the world to come, may be the most important love gift we have ever offered. You can call us to receive this gift at 888-766-3610. You can order by mail by using the information on your screen. Or you can get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. Yeshua said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. When did Abraham see his day? When the king of righteousness, the Melech Zadik, brought forth bread and wine. And when he brought forth bread and wine, it says that the Melech Zadik blessed the Most High. And that prayer is still remembered and is what Yeshua said when he blessed the Most High the night of the Last Supper, the night before the Passover lambs were slain. Yeshua said, Baruch atah Yehovah, Elohino melech ha'olam, hamotzi lechem mi'aretz. This broken bread represents my broken body, my body which is broken for you. By my stripes you are healed. Do this as often as you do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And the words of the Melech Zadik, he blessed the Most High. Baruch atah Yehovah Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Borei pri agafen. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And Yeshua said, this represents and has represented from the time of Abraham the renewed covenant. My blood will purchase for you. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So you think you know the Torah. It's been corrected the whole time. No mistake has ever been made, especially not with the name of Yehovah. Mm, we're about to learn some new things with Nehemia Gordon. Welcome back to Shabbat Night Live. Thanks, Scott. Last week we touched on this, but yeah. uh, we barely got into this. Well, and, and, and we kind of uh, ended it at, at, at uh, it wasn't ideal where we ended it. In, in other words, we ended it, maybe people were thinking, so I can't trust my Bible, which is not what I'm saying at all. Mm. What I'm saying is that you've got to go and look at the manuscripts. You have to see what the evidence shows and compare and look at all the evidence uh, I, I want to show you some examples in Torah scrolls of the precision to which the, the scribes went to try and preserve every letter exactly as they received it, but we can still see the traces of the process. We can we see the smoking guns of how things were changed. And that's that's something different than previously assumed, right? Because before it was always, well, yeah, sure, you'd find corrections in a codex, 
but to find... Every Torah scroll is identical. We don't even need to study them. That was the attitude. Mm. They're literally identical. There's no differences. And then we see things like spaces between verses. Some Torah scrolls have dots between verses. Mm. We've even found Torah scrolls that have vowels and accents. We found all kinds of things that aren't supposed to exist, but they do exist. They're rare, but they happen. And, and it doesn't and, change anyone's faith. I mean, it, it oh, doesn't no. really... It just strengthens my faith because exactly. now I get back to the sources and I say, okay, the Jewish people who, in, and, and I'll show you a Torah scroll from the 13th century, that in the, the year 1349, the Jews who used this Torah scroll were martyred for their faith. They died clinging on to the Torah scroll. There's a collection of these Torah scrolls from this town in Germany called Erfurt. And on March 21st, 1349, they were attacked by the local Catholic population. They had, it was at the height of the Black Plague and they saw the Catholics were dying and the Jews weren't. And uh, we don't know why that is. Maybe it was because Jews had cats. I have no idea. Or but maybe all the washings or something. Could have been or... the washing. We don't know. But the Jews weren't, at least in that particular area in time, weren't as affected by the Black Plague. The Christians, the, or the Catholics, became convinced the Jews are poisoning the well. That's why they were dying. They didn't know it was coming from the, rat, the fleas that infected the, the rats. So they blamed the Jews. They went and attacked them. And these Jews held on to these scrolls in their dying moments. There's, there's some of these scrolls from Erfurt that have burn marks on them. There's a mm. prayer book that was open at that time that has blood on it, according to some scholars. Uh, this was discovered in the 19th century when the scholar went to, uh, went to uh, Berlin, where it was held at the time, to study one of these, co one of, it's a codex in that case, um, and he found there were blood stains on these uh, Hebrew manuscripts taken from the Jews of 13, from 1349. And, but we can see the traces, not just of blood, we can see the forensic traces of how they corrected and fixed the Torah scrolls and changed them. So let's have a look here. Uh, this is a, uh, an example where, which shows the level of precision the scribes went to. It's Genesis 33:17, and we have what are called mattress lectionis, or I call them vowel helpers. There are certain letters in Hebrew that don't change the meaning and don't change the pronunciation. They're there to tell you there's a certain vowel when you read the word. And when the scribes came along, they wanted to copy every single letter down to these vowel helpers in specific instances of specific words. Just to give you an analogy, um, they, you know, in English we have standardized spelling but you can spell the word color, C-O-L-O-R, C-O-L-O-U-R. It doesn't change the meaning. It tells you, are you from England or are you from the United States? Well, imagine if in every instance of every word, they said, well, that time you spelled it with the U and that time you didn't spell it with the U. That's what these vowel helpers mm. are. So here we have the word Sukkot, which is both the name of a city and a booth. And you can see the first time in a single verse, it's, it's spelled without the Vav, and the second time it's spelled with the Vav. And doesn't change the meaning. It doesn't even change the pronunciation, but the scribes wanted it preserved exactly as they received it. So if you look at virtually, and I'm gonna add the word virtually, which I wouldn't have said before. I would have said every Torah <laughs> scroll in the world. Now I'm gonna say virtually every Torah scroll because I haven't checked everyone. Um, you'll see as a rule, the first instance of this word in the verse has the Vav and the second, or sorry, other way around. The first instance does not have the Vav and the second one does. The one on the right doesn't, the one on the left does. Now, again, doesn't change the meaning, but they said this is what Moses wrote, this exact letter in this word of this verse, even if it's more than once in, in the verse, right? The same word appears twice, spelled two different ways. We have to reproduce it exactly.
Hmm. But things are a little bit more complicated than that. When you focus, when you zoom in, what do you find? So in the first instance of that word in the verse, originally it was written with a vav. Aha. Scribe came along, scratched off the vav, and now he's got a space in the middle of the word. So he scratched off the last letter, the tav, made it a wider tav, he stretched it out to fill in that space. So you can see the forensic traces of when the scribes are fixing the scrolls. It's very difficult to hide when a scribe changes something. It leaves traces behind. Sometimes you don't know what they changed, but you can tell something was changed. That's very interesting. And sometimes you can see exactly, as in this case, you see exactly what they changed. Here's another case. Here we again have a vowel helper, these mattress lectionis. It doesn't change the meaning, it doesn't change the pronunciation. He had the word shimoni, which is a Simeonite, Simeonite, somebody from the tribe of Simeon. And it had a vav in there, and the proofreader comes along, probably the original scribe, and he says, well, wait a minute, there's not supposed to be a vav in this instance. Again, it doesn't change the meaning, but they believed every letter was sacred. Some rabbis would take it one step further, and they'd say, if there's a vav or not a vav, we're going to read meaning into that extra vav. And I call it extra because oh, wow. it's not required there. Um, they did that as early as Second Temple times. There's a famous example with the water libation that the rabbis came along and they found what they, what they call, you know, call extra letters, meaning they didn't change the pronunciation or the meaning, and they said it spells out the word water. We did, I did a thing with Michael about that, um, the waters of salvation. Oh, yeah, yeah okay. I'm not sure mm -hmm. we talked about that detail, but this goes back to Second Temple times that every letter was considered sacred, and we can see in this Torah scroll they originally had a vav, and somebody scratched it out. I can still see that the vav was there. <laughs> so the forensic traces are there. This is so important. It, it gives me more confidence in my Bible. I can see not only what it says, but what it said before. And why did they change it? Well, usually they changed it because every Bible in the world, virtually, again, virtually, <laughs> almost all Bibles in the world don't have a vav here, and so they wanted it to be uniform in accordance with what they considered the official version. Well, turns out the official version wasn't as official as they thought, because sometimes they're changing it contrary to the official version. We saw an example of that last week. It's rare, but it happens. Here he had a vav, he erased it. Um, here he was missing a yud. Right? And again, this doesn't change the meaning, doesn't change the pronunciation. He scratched off part of the Lamed, stuck in a little tiny Yud, and then had to rewrite the rest of the Lamed. And I can see the forensic traces of that. Right? It's very hard to hide something in parchment. That one's pretty messy, as a matter of it's, fact. A, a lot of them are extremely messy. Some of them are so messy, the scribe had to write in the margin. Uh, usually this was done in a codex. They'd write in the margin, here's what I meant to do, hmm. but it's so messy you can't even read it. That actually happened. Now... Um, we've got a bunch more examples here. A lot of times when we're looking at these things, we're kind of guessing at what the correction was. We don't always know. Sometimes you'll see an entire line that's been erased and then rewritten. Here I found something extremely rare. I found that there's these uh, five words that are written smaller than all the surrounding words in, in the middle line there, the fourth line from the top, in this Torah scroll. And something presumably was left out, he scratched off a bunch of words and then rewrote them much smaller to squeeze in the word he was missing. Hmm. Now some scribes would write the missing word above the line. This scribe wanted to write everything on the line and so he scratched off a bunch of words and rewrote them smaller. What word did he miss? We could only guess, except we don't have to guess this time because in pencil, the scribe wrote chaser et, the word et is missing. Now, well, that probably happened all the time but in this case, the scribe left the pencil mark. 
Ah. Normally that would have been erased because, you know, pencil's not permanent. Um, you can go and erase it. Nobody would ever know that something was written there. This scribe forgot to erase the words written in the margin. The word et is missing. So imagine the process here. The scribe is checking every letter, every word, and he comes to a certain place and the word, this entire word missing, the word et. Now et's a very interesting word. Um, it's, some people call it the Aleph Tav word, right? It has the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter of the alphabet. It doesn't translate easily into English. Mm. In other words, if I say there's 10 words in the verse in Hebrew and I translate it into English, I can't have, I don't have a word that parallels the word et. It's what we call a direct object marker. It has a, a grammatical function. It's extremely important in Hebrew. Uh, it's not always required. You can have a perfectly good sentence without it, but it helps to understand the sentence. And the word et here was accidentally left out and the scribe left the smoking gun. I've never seen this except this one time huh. in all the scrolls I've looked at where the scribe messed up. And I don't know when the scribe did this. Maybe it's modern pencil, right? It's very difficult to say uh, with the information I have available right now. It's, it's relatively recent, meaning it's the last few hundred years this was done. And by the way, that raises an interesting point. When you look at uh, Greek manuscripts, printing comes along around the year 1450, and it begins to spread, and, and people stop writing manuscripts. Hmm. And you have manuscripts, but they're usually the copy that was brought to the printer. That's what we call the manuscript, right? <laughs> Um, Jewish we have more Jewish manuscripts that have survived after 1450 than before 1450, hmm. which kind of blows my mind. Like, wait a minute, why would somebody in the, in the 19th century write a manuscript? And there's two main reasons. One is that it, they could have lived in a country where they didn't have printing. Like the Jews of Yemen, when they came to Israel, they basically came out of the Iron Age, right? They didn't have a printing press in Yemen when the Jews came to Israel in 19 around 1950, hmm. they airlifted the Jews from this backward country to the land of Israel. Um, other works were written by hand because the printing press was regulated. Hmm. You had censorship. And for example, some of the manuscripts of Hebrew Matthew are from after 1450. Why write a copy of Hebrew Matthew? Just print it, because it was illegal to print. They had censorship, sounds familiar? People have ways <laughs> of getting, getting, getting around censorship, at least up until now they had ways, and they would do that by copying it out by hand. Mm. So Jews still write Torah scrolls by hand. So this could be modern, but it's a beautiful example of what may have happened, you know, relatively modern, or it could be a few hundred years old. It's an example of the type of thing that would have happened in the Middle Ages uh, where they wrote something in an impermanent way. And we can sometimes see this, that they wrote something even with ink in the margin and then scratched it off. And what did they write in the margin? Probably there's a word missing here. Come back later and fix it. So I love that we can see the traces of it. Here we have something interesting. We have a hole in the, in the scroll, right? And why is there a hole? Maybe the animal, as they were, they were scraping the animal's skin, they accidentally scratched it and put a hole in it. Hmm. And so they sewed it up, and you can see the sew marks. Yep. And what we know about this is that this hole was made before the letters were written. How do I know it was before the letters were written? Because there's an olive on top of it. And the olive stretches very wide to cover from both, both sides of this tear oh, yeah. of the hole. <laughs> I saw on top so of that, it yeah. predates, and then there's letters there that are squeezed in, there's letters that are stretched, this dilating and contracting. We talked about the letters in the previous uh, program. So they have holes. Why are holes important? You'll see in a minute. Here's a hole that was sewed up probably from before the scroll was written based on the spacing, and the hole remains sewed up. 
Here the hole was never sewn up. It was left. Here's a tear that again happened before the scroll was written. I can see from the shapes of the letters, they're written to fit the hole. So we have these tears and holes. Now this is a different type of hole. Hmm. This hole is nothing like the holes we saw before. And when I saw this, I'm like, wow, what's going on here? Now what is going on here? We have a very common type of scribal error that happened. And I gotta tell you up front, I'm guessing, because the hole consists of something cut out and I don't have what was cut out, it's gone. But uh, it's a reasonable guess based on the context here. And I've seen many examples like this, so you kind of get a feeling for these things. So what happened? The scribe got to the end of the line, jumped to the next line, and copied the letters yud Hey vav Hey, the name of God, Yehovah, but he did it from the following line. So oh, he copied it into the wrong place. Now he's got a problem. And what's his problem? So the rabbis have a law. And the law is, this isn't commanded in the Torah, but they derive it from the Torah. It's Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses three to four. Let's see what it says. It says in Deuteronomy 12, tear down their altars, talking about the pagan Canaanites, smash their pillars, put their sacred posts to the fire, and cut down the images of their gods, obliterating their name from that site being the name of the pagan gods. So this idea in Deuteronomy in particular, we see in Exodus as well, that a place where God puts his name is holy. And so the name, the place where you, where you worship Baal, that's a place where the pagans believe Baal put the name of Baal. And Ishtar, Easter, put the name of Easter, Ashtoret. Um, so it says, obliterating their names, the pagan gods from that site. And then it says, do not worship Yehovah your God, Yehovah your God in like manner. That's what it says in the JPS. Let's look at the King James Version. So it says, you shall do not so unto the Lord your God, meaning unto Yehovah your God. So what's, what is it you should not do so? What, and, and it's not entirely clear if you just read verse four. You might say what you're not supposed to do is, what I would say, is don't build high places to Yehovah like the Canaanites built to their gods. But the rabbis say, no, 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 no. When it says, do not do so to Yehovah your God, what it means is, destroy the names of the pagan gods, don't destroy the name yud heh vav ah. And they derive from this a rule, it is forbidden to erase God's name, even if it's written by mistake. And what do I mean by erase God's name? How do you erase a name? We saw how you erase other words in the previous program. You take a razor, a knife, and you scratch it off the, off the surface, right? We even saw some examples today where you scratch it off. So that's forbidden in rabbinical law. So now the rabbis have a dilemma. What do they do? They accidentally wrote the word Yehovah from the following line on, on, a, on, a, on an earlier line. There's an extra instance of Yehovah. We gotta fix it. How do we fix it? And this is where I was told, oh, that, if that, that never happened, that it happened. It was completely removed. It was cut out of the scroll. Nonsense. That one word was cut out of the scroll, not the whole column. Or oh, not wow. the whole sheet. Because I'd heard if they, they, they messed up the name of Yehovah, they'd have to destroy the whole scroll. No, but that's, that's not that's true. That's utter nonsense. In fact, it, it's, it's, well, here's where it comes from. There's something called a mezuzah, which is what you put on the doorpost. Mm -hmm. And there's phylacteries, which are the... Yeshua mentions phylacteries, right? It's the thing the, the rabbis wear on their forehead and on their hand, right. and it has tiny little scrolls in it. And those have to be written sequentially. 
Mm. And what do I mean sequentially? It's, it's actually kind of like a magic amulet, to be honest. Okay. So uh, you write the first word, and then you write the second word, and you write the third word. Well, what if I forgot the second word? Okay, no problem. I'll scratch off the, sec- the third word and write the second word and third word, right? You can do that. But what if one of those words is Yehovah? Well, now I'm done. I can't erase Yehovah. Hmm. So if you do it in phylacteries, you're done. You've got to start over. But it's only a paragraph. This Torah scroll is, uh, this particular one is 50 sheets, right? That's like 25 sheep. <laughs> I'm assuming it's, or, or uh, cows in this case, right? 25 cows, right? Each, each half of the cow is, <laughs> is uh, one of the sheets. Um, 25 cows or bulls donated this, uh, the sheets for this Torah scroll. And um, when they made a mistake in the word yud heh they took a razor and they cut that word out. Now, I had hmm. been in conversations with scholars about this, and I'd heard about this, I'd read about it. I said, can you show me an example? And they said, well, no, we don't have any examples. I've seen it, but I don't know any examples. I said, tell me the library. I'll go to that library and I'll find it. If, if you, see, you say you've seen it somewhere, one scholar said to me, I have no idea. I've seen thou- you know, hundreds of scrolls, thousands of scrolls, don't know where. So I went looking for it and I found it. And here's a scroll that has it. Now I found it in numerous scrolls, more than I can count. Huh. Um, but here's an example where they cut God's name out, not to dis- disgrace it or to desecrate it, but because it was too holy to destroy. And then you say, So that's not destroying it? No, not at all, because they kept that little piece of parchment. Oh. And we're told in medieval sources what to do with that piece of parchment. You take glue, literally glue, put it on the back of that little piece, right? It's a single word piece of parchment. And you can do two things that I know of at least. One is you stick it onto the side of the ark, which is the cabinet in which you keep a Torah scroll. Mm-hmm. I haven't found any examples of that, but it's mentioned in the ancient medieval literature. The other thing you can do is you glue it to the back of another Torah scroll. And I found two examples of that so far, where there's just a word glued on the back of a Torah scroll, and it's the name of God. Wow. Pretty cool stuff. That is very cool. I had no idea that was done. So we are now destroying sacred cows, as it it were. (laughs) Well, what we're doing is correcting an (laughs) error in the text by not defacing God's name based on this rabbinical interpretation, which I don't agree with, right? But the way they read Deuteronomy 12, 3 and 4 is it's forbidden to erase God's name even when it's a mistake. Okay, in that case... Preserve that word. Don't destroy the word, but cut mm. it out and put it somewhere else. You got to remove it from the scroll because it's an error. And even celebrating it at that point, really, to put it on the back of a scroll or yeah. So preserving wow. it in a holy way where God's name won't be stepped on or destroyed. That's amazing. Okay, Nehemi, would you hang on with us? Absolutely. Okay, we'll be right back. All right. So thank you for hanging on with us as well. This is fascinating information. I'm learning about them some things. I'm hoping you are too. And uh, we have more to come in the second half of Shabbat Night Live, but uh, we just want to take this time to ask you to uh, donate to Shabbat Night Live because without you, Nehemia can't be here. We can't have Shabbat Night Live. So we want to thank you and you are not only providing this program so you can watch it, but so that others can watch it into the future. So we want to give you a couple minutes to uh, pray about a uh, donation to this ministry so we can continue doing what we do here. And uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you for your support of Shabbat Night Live on behalf of myself and on behalf of our guest today, Nehemia Gordon. Mm. Now, Nehemia, we have uh, we were talking before the break about uh, cutting out the name of God if it was uh, not supposed to be there and actually celebrating it by putting it on the back of a Torah scroll or on the cabinet of a, another Torah scroll on the... Uh, the Ark. The Ark, thank you, the name of the Ark. But we have celebrated it on... Lots of things on, on at a rude awakening. We love this. So we have this from the Aleppo Codex. This is Yod Vav 
on, on the cup here. And some people complain to us and say, uh, you are disgracing the name of Yehovah because that's not the name of Yehovah. That's a, that's a het. That's not a hey, because the hey on the left side of the letter is not supposed to connect to the top. Mm -hmm. And they say, why is that? And I gave some lame excuse. I said, well, maybe in, in the Torah scroll, because it's made of animal skin, maybe the ink ran. I said, I don't know. So what, what's the official reason here? So uh, th this is really important. It's a great question. I'm so glad we opened with this. So um, the shapes of the letters have changed over time, and how they were written has changed over time. That's actually one of the things I found. There's this one particular Torah scroll that I've been studying that was written in the 12th or 13th century, and it was written with the connected hay. Okay. Now, this mug, and, and I gotta say, I, I was talking to this man, uh, this great scholar, brilliant man from Germany, and, and, and somebody had sent him Michael holding up this mug, and he was very upset. And he turns to me, he says, Nehemiah, only an American would put God's name on a, on a mug. <laughs> so, look, I'll let you guys decide. Maybe true. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I don't Guilty. know if it's only an American. <laughs> Um, I think we, look, this is an old issue that's gone on. There, there's this document that I was, uh, a scholar from Italy was telling me about where the, the Jews of Rome wrote to the Pope and they said, you know, you guys are disgracing God's name by, by speaking it. Because from the rabbinical perspective, it's a disgrace to God's name to speak it. Um, you know, I know that Michael put it on this mug to honor the name, right? right. Instead of oh, picking up the mug and, mug and saying, you know, oh, the uh, Chicago Bears. I get to think about that <laughs> while I drink my coffee. You think about the beautiful, glorious name of Yehovah. Um, so if, if you don't feel that that's honoring, don't buy the mug. Don't get a mug. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, so this exact, what Michael did was kind of beautiful. He took the Aleppo Codex, and I assume somebody did an outline of it, right? Because yeah, it's, it's not We black. literally scanned it's, it. Yep. It's, yeah, okay, you mm -hmm. scanned it, all right. So you, they took the Aleppo Codex and you took yud heh vav -Hey from the book of Ezekiel and the Aleppo Codex, the name Yehovah, as it appears there. So this is how the scribe of the Aleppo Codex wrote the letter He in the 10th century. So this Torah scroll I've been studying, um, uh, it was written in the 12th or 13th century, and he wrote the He the same way as the guy of the Aleppo Codex. Hmm. But it's a Torah scroll that wasn't taken in a, like we looked at another one where there was a massacre of the Jews and in 1349 it goes into Christian hands and is preserved in a monastery. This other one was used by Jews throughout the century. And some Jew came along and asked the same question as the people who asked you about this hay. They said, well, why is this hay connected? And this was every hay in the Torah scroll. So they hired a scribe whose job it was to go through the Torah scroll with a razor, with a sharp knife, and scratch off the connection of the hay to the, to the roof. Now, let's back up. The shapes of letters change over time. So when the scribe of the Aleppo Codex around the year 925 wrote these hays in the Aleppo Codex, almost every hay in the Aleppo Codex looked like that. It was connected to the roof. Occasionally it's not connected because he's in a hurry, but it was meant to be connected to the roof. Hmm. The chet looks completely different in the Aleppo Codex. You, I shouldn't say you can't confuse them because you can always confuse things, right? But it's not easy to confuse a hey and a chet in the Aleppo Codex. The chet, which is a letter that a modern, and look, I had a modern Israeli say to me, why does it say yud chet vav chet instead of yud hey vav hey? Mm. This is how it was written in the Aleppo Codex, right? It's considered the uh, most accurate, precise uh, Bible in the world. Uh, a thousand years ago, Maimonides tells us Jews used to come from all over the world. And he says, used to. It's something that in his time even, it is something they had done 100 or 200 years before. He said Jews used to come from all over the world to check their Bibles against the Aleppo Codex. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, and we have Bibles that are written, and it says checked against the Aleppo Codex. It didn't call it the Aleppo Codex. It called it the crown. Mm. It was known back then as in the Arabic name. They used El-Taj, in Hebrew, Haketev, the crown. Right? It was the quintessential, the most accurate Bible that they had. And that, that Now, we looked at examples where Torah scrolls were corrected according to a different version, right? right. So we have the, what's called the Tiberian version, which is the Aleppo Codex. There was another version. In Europe, Jews had a version of the Bible that was slightly different. There was different wording with different letters in some places. It wasn't major differences. Didn't change the fundamentals, which is that, you know, Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad, Hero Israel, Yehovah is our God, Yehovah is one, right? That didn't change. It didn't say, thou shalt commit adultery. It still said, <laughs> thou shalt not commit adultery. But maybe the word adultery might have been spelled with, a, with a, well, there wouldn't have made a difference, but certain words might have been spelled slightly differently. So this is what the hay looked like, right? Now, you could say, oh, write it in modern Hebrew font. Okay, go ahead and write in modern Hebrew font, right? It's a different, it's a font that, you know, we have fonts that were created in the 20th century that are very beautiful. This is what the font looked like. I use the word font, right? But it was handwriting. This is what the handwriting of the Aleppo Codex looks like. And it was very common to, um, you know, that the, the hay and chet were easily distinguished. There was no problem. Anybody who studies medieval Hebrew codexes and particularly the Aleppo Codex in that period, and if you wrote this as a normal hay, they'd say, well, you got the period wrong. Right, you're projecting back into time something that didn't exist back then, or it's just different. You know, it's really interesting. Somebody sent me a video about they did these um, uh, uh, sound graphs, and I don't know a lot about this, but he's, I'm just saying that this 30 second video somebody sent me that when somebody would speak the letters Aleph, Bet, that the sound graph looked like an Aleph, and the sound graph looked like a Tet, for example, the ninth huh. letter of the alphabet. And having studied all these manuscripts, I asked what to me was kind of an obvious question. Why does it look like a 21st century tet? Shouldn't it look like a tet? That, in other words, they were saying when you sit, you know, say A, B, C, D, and the sound graph looks nothing, nothing like an A, nothing like a B. But when you say the Hebrew alphabet, it looks like the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, alphabet. But it looks like a modern Hebrew aleph and a modern Hebrew bet, not the Paleo Hebrew. Hmm. So, um, and originally the Torah was obviously written in Paleo Hebrew. I'm dealing with uh, in these manuscripts I'm showing you as it was preserved throughout the ages, right? And, and what Bible do we have today, right? Where do we get our Hebrew Bible today, right? It's preserved in manuscripts. Mm. Well, those manuscripts, if they don't agree, I want to know what those disagreements are, just like I do with the Greek New Testament. Right, yeah. And if I'm studying any document. Huh. So anyway, so Interesting. Well, you showed me a modern tet that when somebody speaks the word tet, it looks like a modern tet. All right, well. So just real quick, is yeah. the modern chet very thicker on the left-hand side? Is that um, how we so, distinguish? So let's start with the... Uh, um, the chet of the Aleppo Codex, right, didn't have this little extra piece here. Ah. We call this in Hebrew a chupchik. It didn't have a chupchik. A chupchik is anything sticking out. Actually, okay. chupchik is literally the spout of a, of, um, a tea kettle. Okay. Right? So it's got a little chupchik, right? This little extra piece distinguishes a hay from a chet. So it's cut um, off at the... At the, the modern chet, it depends on the font, right? Mm. You have fonts that look... And I've had people say this to me, Nehemia, you put something on your website in Hebrew and I can't read it. And I'm like, why can't you read it? They're like, well... I learned to read from this particular Bible, and that's the shapes of the letters are different. Uh. So, okay, they're different in your eyes, and they are different, right? Like we have serifs and sans serifs, right? So if you have a chet that has serifs, which are these little kind of doohickeys, mm -hmm. um, I call them doohickeys, uh, they're little <laughs> decorations, little flourishes on the letters, then the chet might have some flourish. There's all kinds of different chets that look different throughout so not, the period. So not unlike a modern uh, person who speaks English trying to read a Bible from oh, the absolutely. 17th century. Even think is... about this. Think about the letter G, the lowercase g. 
There's how we are taught to write it by hand. Mm -hmm. And then there's that thing where it's almost like a pair of glasses on their side, oh, yeah. right? Which is the lowercase <laughs> g in print. Well, why is that? Where'd they get that from? Well, there's different ways of writing the letter and one is preserved in print and one's preserved in, um, in, in handwriting. Well, when we're dealing with manuscripts, everything is handwriting, Yeah. right? Um, you have different handwritings in a period and then the, over time the handwriting changes. So you had a period where the chet was connected in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the leg of the chet, sorry, the hay, the leg, left leg of the hay, we call it the left leg, is connected. And then at some time in the 11th or 12th, 13th century, it becomes disconnected. And for a time, ah. people still connect it, right? And then sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, right? You have a transition period. And then you get to the period where we never correct it. And they take out the Torah scroll in the synagogue and they're like, wait a minute, we never noticed this. We, we were told by the rabbi who visited last week that the left leg of the hay is not supposed to be connected. In our Torah scroll, it looks like what we th think is a chet. Let's hire a scribe to sit there and scratch out. Imagine the work involved in scratching off every single instance, which incidentally is a violation of rabbinical law for a different reason, I won't go into it, but you're, there's actually rabbinical scribal law. You can't form a letter by changing the shape of, uh, of what's another coherent letter, but it well, doesn't matter. Not to mention, they, you'd have to touch every instance of Yehovah. You would have to, and that's, they're <laughs> not supposed to do that, but they did. Ugh. And this is, one of, this is the most important thing I learned from the study I've been doing in the last few years, is that you could have whatever rules you want written in the, in the official rabbinical guides of how, what you're supposed to do. The scribe who's in a village somewhere, uh, living on the edge of poverty, and he just spent a week writing an entire sheet, takes about a week to write a sheet, and he makes a mistake, maybe he's supposed to remove that whole sheet, but push comes to shove, he's gotta feed his family, and if that means it's not so aesthetic, it might be kind of weird looking, he'll still do it. Let's look at what we looked at in the previous segment here. I showed you here how the scribe made a mistake. He accidentally wrote Yehovah on the wrong line. And that happened 22 times in this scroll. There are 22 places where they cut out Yehovah or another divine title like Elohim. Let's zoom in on it. You can see originally the scribe put a uh, ink rectangle around the name Yehovah. And then at a certain point he came later and said, well, that's confusing, right? The ink rectangle means don't read this word. Hmm. But let's make it prettier so they cut out all the instances of Yehovah that were written there by mistake, not to de desecrate it, on the contrary, to honor it. Here's another example where they cut it out. This was happened 22 times in this scroll alone. Here's a different scroll. And this is a beautiful example. We can, we can get into the mind of the scribe who made the mistake. We have a very unusual phrase. There's a common phrase, and Yehovah spoke to Moses. Hmm. And here it's supposed to say, and Moses spoke to Yehovah. How many times does that appear? I think it's five where it says Yehovah said, or Moses said to Yehovah, I even said it wrong just now, right? <laughs> it's so common, Yehovah said to Moses, we have five, something like five times, if I'm not mistaken, um, where it says, and Moses spoke to Yehovah, or Moses said to Yehovah, so the scribe originally is writing, and he makes the mistakes, he, he writes yud heh vav -Heh. How do I know he writes yud heh vav Because if it was a different word, he would have just scratched it off. Here he ah. had to cut it out with a razor. And then he does something he didn't do in the previous scroll. In this scroll, he takes a patch, slaps a patch on the back, and writes the word Moses over the patch. Right, so you can see the process of what's happening. Now, somebody might say, wait a minute, 
the scribe originally wrote Yehovah. How dare he remove Yehovah's name? Well, he has to. Yehovah's name's not supposed to be here. Otherwise, you have, and Yehovah said to Yehovah. <laughs> it right. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right? God's speak, talking um, to himself. God's talking to himself. Well, and maybe you can come up with some theology of how that works. But in every other Bible we have, and I want to say virtually, because uh, <laughs> I haven't checked them, Virtually every other Bible we have, it says, and Moses said to Yehovah, so that's what we're expecting. In this case, the corrector found an actual mistake. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. It's so common that there isn't a single page of the Aleppo Codex where there isn't a mistake that's corrected. Not mm -hmm. a single solitary page where somebody didn't correct a mistake in the Aleppo Codex. Um, it's good to know we're all human. Yep, we all are all human and human. Here's an example where the tribe, the scribe, the tribe, the scribe was supposed to write the word, he's listing the tribes, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and he's supposed to write Judah. And he does write Judah, but after cutting something out. And huh. what did he cut out? We can only guess, but presumably he wrote Yehovah, because that's what's usually cut out. Now, how did he make the mistake? Because Yehovah is graphically similar to Yehuda, to the word Judah. Ah, uh, yes, because the, the Dalit is like a hey. A hey. Right, so you're okay. looking back and forth and you're used to writing Yehovah all the time and you accidentally write Yehovah instead of Yehuda, because graphically it's very similar. Here's another case where I put a light behind the scroll and was able to show that it was a patch. I mean, I could see it for myself, oh, yeah. okay. but I wanted to show in the photo that there was a patch there. Um, okay, let's go past this. So here we have an example. This is a beautiful thing here, a beautiful illustration of the issue where mm. the scribe in Exodus 5.22 originally must have written something like, and Yehovah said, instead of Adonai said. Now, how did he make that mistake? Because the tradition is when you see the letters Yud, He, Vav, He, you pronounce them as Adonai. And so in his head, he's saying Adonai, and when he wants to write Yud, He, Vav, He, and maybe even with his mouth, he's saying Adonai, and so he writes Adonai instead of Yehovah. How do I know that's what happened? Because he cut something out here, and it could have been that he wrote, and Moses said, right? We don't know. We don't have what he cut out in this case. Uh, but it's more than likely he wrote Yehovah, replaced it with Adonai. And that's actually a really important point, that the scribes were very meticulous, distinguishing between yud heh vav -Hey, the name of the creator of the universe in Hebrew, Yehovah, and Adonai, which means Lord. Mm. right? Lord referring to God, Lord with capital L in, in English. Hebrew doesn't have capital letters, but... It had, even though they read yud heh vav -Hey as Adonai based on tradition, if it was supposed to be written Yehovah, they wrote Yehovah. And if it was supposed to be written Adonai, they wrote Adonai, and if they made a mistake, they went and corrected it. Now, how do I know it's a mistake? Maybe this is supposed to say Yehovah. And that's something that was actually argued by a scholar named Christian David Ginsburg. He was a scholar in the 19th century, one of the great scholars of the Hebrew text of the Bible. He was actually a Jew who hmm. converted to Christianity. He was named by his parents David Ginsburg, and he took on, he added the name Christian David Ginsburg when he converted. Oh. And he became one of the great scholars of the Hebrew text of the Bible. To this day, he studied in uh, um, Orthodox Jewish uh, uh, programs. They study his works, not what he said about Christianity, but what he said about the Hebrew text of the Bible, because it's still the best thing that's been done, right? It certainly is the scope of what has been done, what he did is, has been unparalleled, right? You can find mistakes in him, you can correct him, but you still start with Christian David Ginsburg because he just had this incredible, voluminous work that he had done, incredible stuff. And uh, he argued that we have 134 instances, is a famous thing, especially in the Hebrew Roots Movement. There's 134 instances 
in which originally it said Yehovah, and they were replaced in those 134 instances with Adonai. Huh. And I have argued against this vociferously and vehemently <laughs> and said, no, there's no evidence for that. Ginsburg made that up. It's a lie. There's no proof that originally it said Yehovah in those 134 instances. It wants to say Adonai. It knows how to say Adonai. And Scott, in the next program next week, I'm going to show evidence that I was wrong. Oh, God. Well, okay, well, hang on to that. I don't we think have... we're going to be able to get to it today, but, there... but we'll touch upon maybe a bit. Of, we only have only a few minutes left. Uh, and I can't say in all 134, okay. but I can talk about one place where, and maybe even a few others, where maybe they originally did say Yehovah. I'm not throwing out what the Hebrew Jewish scribes did. I still trust them. They've preserved our Bible. But there are other scribes who are also Jewish Hebrew scribes. I'm not making this up, right? Wow. This was my problem with Ginsburg. I didn't see the evidence. Now I've seen the evidence in the Hebrew manuscripts. Hmm. So it's not that I'm speculating it should say Yehovah. I actually have manuscripts where it says Yehovah in some of these instances. Okay, well, hold on to that. And this we'll, completely changes the, the game. We'll, we'll, we'll hold it, hang on to that for the next episode. But before we go, you wanted to mention something about John 17. Ooh. What is that? Okay, I'll do this really quick. Okay. I did this teaching with Michael, and uh, I talked about how I looked at Dalich's translation into Hebrew from the Greek of John 17, and he uses this word repeatedly about the word forgive, give, give, give. And in that teaching, I said, and there's another word. And I went back because I thought, did I say that? I meant to say there's another word, not the word Dalich used in Hebrew to translate the Greek. Did I, rem did I remember to say, because you know, I have like a minute now, right? <laughs> did I say another word? And, and I actually had an independent person go and, and watch the video, and he found me the time code where, Nehemiah, you did say the words, Dalich, you know, you talked about Dalich, and I said, and there's another word in Hebrew, right? So Dalich used the word for give throughout John 17. The word he used is Natan, which is Natati, I gave. Mm -hmm. Natata, you, you gave. But there's another word, that could be used in Hebrew, a word that's common in Aramaic, rare in Hebrew, but it appears in Hebrew. It's the word we have in Hava Nagila, mm. which means literally give song or give, let us sing, right? Hava Nagila, Hava. So Lehav, Yud Vav, Yehava means to give. That's written with a bet, not with a Vav like God's name. But what I argued is there's a play on words in John 17 perhaps in the original that Yeshua spoke, not in Dalich's version, because Dalich's version uses Natan, but as I said, there's another word in John 17, uh, or the, there, there's another word that could have been used in John 17 in the original that Hebrew, that Yeshua spoke, that I, I don't have that version, but it's possible that these 17 times he talks about give, 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 17 times, he's using the word Yahav as a play on words with Yehovah. Hmm. And then in John 17, 6, 11, and 12, and 26, go look at those verses. Um, he has this idea of manifesting the name of the Father, and that might be tied into this another word, this other word, forgive, that he may have used, which is the word Yahav related to Yehovah in sound, not in grammar. Wow. That's... I wish I had more time to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> We'll go, to, go study it for yourself. Yes, we'll have to replay this and, and go study it for yourself. If you want more of Nehemia, you got it. You want to come back next week? Absolutely, let's, let's do, do it. it. All right, until then, Shavua Tov. We'll see you next week on Shabbat Night Live.